Chapter 2, Establishing the Pattern. Imagine for a moment you visit one of the NASA space stations in America. Like all the other tourists, you observe the launch pad, take in the enormous size of a shuttle, and browse the gift shop. But what you're most excited about is the special invitation you receive to take a rare peek behind the scenes. As you stand in the hallway peering through the glass, you observe a select group of highly trained NASA engineers finalizing the design for a new space shuttle. Oh, to have the opportunity to see that up close, you dream. As the day draws towards noon, you witness the engineers gathering their things and assume they must be breaking for lunch. Despite your better judgment, you sneak into the room after everyone has gone, hoping for that closer glimpse. Amazed and in awe, you just can't believe what your eyes are now beholding. Though you're not a space engineer or architect, and you haven't a clue what it takes to build a shuttle safe enough to launch into outer space, you can't help but feel there should be a few changes here or there. Just a couple of things to make the structure more aesthetically pleasing, more geared to your liking, and even more convenient and comfortable for those who would be riding in it. Surely no one would mind if you changed just a few details that seem inconsequential, right? Maybe they would even thank you for it later. While this might seem like a far-fetched scenario, don't miss the point that lies within this analogy. Changing the plans of the master architect can affect the well-being of others, even potentially risking their lives. It's evident in the Old Testament when God gave instructions for something to be built or to be performed, he expected it to be followed exactly as he commanded. We don't always know why, but he never said we were entitled to such knowledge, just commissioned to obey. When God gave Moses the pattern for the tent of meeting and its contents, he said in Exodus 25, verse 40, And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. When God told Joshua to march around Jericho, he was very specific in his instructions. When he commanded Noah to build an ark of wood, he was precise on exactly what and how he wanted it executed. So, what if any of those men would have chosen to alter his commands? Can you imagine any of them trying to secretly go behind his back and alter what he had stated? For perspective, here are just a few examples of people who chose to rearrange or ignore what God decreed. There is Achan in Joshua chapter 7. He disregarded God's decree about destroying the things that were meant to be devoted to destruction and rather chose to store an idol in his tent. Because of this one man's disobedience, 30 innocent Israelites died. We all know the story of how Adam and Eve fell, and by extension, all of humanity, as a result of them choosing to ignore God's decree to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I could go on about Korah, David, Abraham, and others, but the point is this. When God, the master architect, specifically identifies how something is to be built, we who are invited into his grace are not to change the blueprint. We aren't to alter what he establishes based on our own opinions or preferences. Our call is simply to submit and align ourselves with his model. Otherwise, we risk putting ourselves and others in danger. Keeping that truth tucked in your memory bank, I'm going to fast forward to the New Testament to ask this question. What is God's blueprint or pattern for his church in Christ? Well, it's certainly not to build another tent of meeting or another ark or to march around Jericho as those events were only shadows that pointed us to the substance, which is Christ. So what then is the essence of the pattern we are to follow, you might ask? 
Let's unpack what Jesus says in John 13 to see if I can shed some light to that question. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. John 13, verse 15. The Greek word in this verse for example is hupodigma, which means an exhibit for imitation or warning. Example, pattern. Jesus is revealing something to his disciples on the last night he was to be with them before his crucifixion. An example that would become the foundation of everything they would do and teach moving forward in their ministry. On the surface, this passage may seem like just a chapter on servanthood, but there is so much more depth here that we need to take some time to unveil. On the evening before his perfect display of love, Jesus was intimately meeting with his disciples in the upper room. Knowing that his hour to depart had come, he demonstrated one of the most powerful displays of the gospel story that we have record of in scripture. In laying aside his outer garment, he took the place of a servant and washed the feet of his own, including the feet of his enemy, then put back on his outer garment and resumed his former position. Notice what he says in verse 12. Do you understand what I have done to you? The king of kings, who was with God in heaven before the foundation of the world, chose to leave the riches of heaven, come down to earth to be born in a feeding trough, and served his own by taking the lowest seat as a pattern for his followers to imitate. He then resumed his position with the Father when his task was completed. In other words, Jesus was telling the disciples, See that you build according to the pattern shown you. Let's go to Philippians 2 and see how Paul articulates this demonstration of Jesus. Philippians 2, 3-8 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 13 is so much more than just a passage on serving. It is a passage on how to die well in this life. It's a passage on how to count others within the body more significant than your own self, even those who would betray you. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. This is the pattern that is the foundation to fulfilling all that God has for us in Christ. And it is the pathway to unlock true blessing and joy. When Jesus wrapped up his physical example to his disciples in John 13, he summarized it with verses 16 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says that the blessing of heaven will flow when we seek to bless others in action, not just word. The blessing of God will be poured out on us when we pour ourselves out on others. Receiving his spiritual riches hinges upon our obedience to his pattern exampled in Christ. But what exactly is that supposed to look like practically for a Christian seeking to follow the example set by Christ? It's simple. You consider everyone else to be greater than yourself. One of the coolest characteristics about the sequoias is how they interact with each other. Many trees compete for resources in order to grow tall and healthy, but not the sequoias. 
They actually share resources in order to grow as a grove or community in which one tree is dependent upon the whole for survival. This interdependence results in the community being more important than any one tree. This is completely opposite to our natural way of thinking, as most people today think more about themselves rather than the whole. Even in the church, it is uncommon to find people who order their lives around what's best for the fellowship they are involved in rather than themselves. Do you, dear Christian, do you order your life around what is best for your fellowship, or is it your life based off of what's best for you? Do you count others more significant than yourself in your giving, how you spend your time, or how you prioritize your day? Do you even consider how it affects your brothers and sisters when you choose to miss a gathering? Does it even register on your mental radar that it might deeply hurt those who spend all week praying and preparing to pour into you, so that you might be built up only to see you choose to sleep in, make your job a greater priority, show up late, or catch that game? We will unpack this concept more in depth in the coming chapters, but I felt it vital to introduce it here as it amplifies the pattern of how Christ desires his body to function. We should steal a page from the book of the Sequoias and strive to emphasize the community and make it of greater priority than any one member. One of the men present at the Last Supper was John the Apostle. When he initially began following Jesus, he was so overwhelmed with zeal and passion that Jesus called him and his brother James Boanerges which means sons of thunder. See Luke 9, 51-55. However, in the five books he wrote, John wrote about love more than any other author of the New Testament, including the Apostle Paul. I can only wonder if this night was a turning point for John. A fixed point in time, which he would eventually look back on and realize what his Lord had done for him and to him. By now, he had walked with Jesus for three years, and during that time he saw firsthand his great power and authority over the Pharisees and spiritual forces of evil in the world. Yet on this night, Jesus was humble and gentle as he shared with his closest followers a physical example of the greatest among them, serving the least of these, rather than lording his power and authority over them as he had in previous instances. John had the privilege of sitting so close to Jesus that he could literally lean on him And as he did, he witnessed the heart of God wide open on vulnerable display. While the exact turning point for John was probably after the resurrection of Christ, it is clear that John didn't forget Jesus' words the night he taught them the importance of loving one another. In John's first epistle, he wrote, For this is the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.11 The message, John said, that he and the disciples all heard from the beginning of their time with Jesus was for the body to love each other as Christ had loved them. That concept in in itself could be unpacked to its fullest depth, spending an entire chapter to see all of its layers and implications. But instead, I want to draw your attention to how John chose to expound on the teaching of Jesus three verses later. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John is saying that the very proof of our spiritual regeneration is identified based on how we live out loving the brethren, or also termed loving one another. So, let me ask, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least, how would you rate your level of love for those of the family of Christ that you fellowship, worship, and serve with? Does your life reveal that your heart has been regenerated to love them as Jesus loved his own? To be clear, 
let me clarify that when I say loving the brethren, I mean, how do you prioritize them in life? How do you communicate with them? How do you serve them, share with them, commit to them? Do you pray for them, even the ones that are harder to get along with? Are you quick to forgive or do you hold a grudge? Do you let your job take precedence of your time over the brethren? What about your children's activities like sports or school? Do you gossip about others within your church family? Are you diligent to be respectful and show perfect courtesy to those in the household of faith, especially the leaders, counting them more significant than yourself? Are you critical when things don't go the way you prefer? Do you find yourself dismissing the brethren for the sake of worldly relationships or worldly things, even good things? Do you neglect fellowship and studying with your fellow believers for futile things that won't bear weight in eternity? Do you treat the time you do get to spend with them as common or less important than the things of the world? In short, how do you love the brethren as Jesus loved you? Listen to what John writes at the end of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 21-23 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. According to this passage, our prayers are hinged upon pleasing the Father through obedience to His commands. John fifteen twelve through 17 Also, according to this passage, those commands are to believe in the authority and power of His Son and to love His church. These two are the umbrella to every other command we have through Christ and must never be placed below any other command. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, as it is obvious that the greatest command is to love God with all that we are, but the expression of loving Him is to love those born of Him. 1 John four twenty through 21 If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a key point to remember as you read throughout the rest of this book. We cannot say we love God while we treat his family as less important than ourselves. This is one of the most glaring weaknesses in the body today, at least in my experience in ministry. Many have engaged in neglecting the body of Christ and see church only as a convenience rather than a conviction. This is tragic, since loving one another is the wellspring of the gospel's power and blessing in our lives, as we learned before when Jesus said, If you do this, you will be blessed. Despite the pattern being littered throughout the New Testament, Christians all over this country are challenging what was instituted through Jesus by allowing worldly things and cares of this world to draw them away from the things God deems most precious and beloved. They place their job, their family, their possessions, their interests, and their time above the brethren. How can we fulfill the pattern set by Jesus if we rarely see one another and aren't fully invested in one another? How can we truly grow as a family in our loyalty, trust, and love for one another if we always place things of lesser value above what God says has the greater value? Dear reader, this idolatry must not be so, for placing that which is earthly over that which is heavenly will always hinder the Spirit's flow within like a wet blanket, both individually and corporately. More on this in the next chapter. What is the root of this sinful pattern, and why does it seem to be such a powerful temptation and snare for so many today? I believe it can be traced back to pride 
which is essentially the root of all evil. Satan loves to mask pride with all sorts of clever things, even humility. Thomas Fuller has a quote which says, Pride perceiving humility honorable often borrows her cloak. Just like weeds in your lawn, if you only mow them down, they will still grow back. In fact, mowing them instead of killing the root actually works as a catapult to the weeds spreading. And pride is the same way. It cannot just be dealt with on the surface. Or else it will often spread its roots to other areas of your life, often popping up unseen, but with a different face. But if pride is the root, then the need for control is the soil which promotes its growth. This need for control is the catalyst to pride's grasp, and it must not be entertained, indulged, or fed. Rather, we must allow the Holy Spirit to get in our heart and uproot it by relinquishing control to Him no matter the cost. Let me explain. Since not repenting from the entrapment of pride will cause God to reject you. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. In Matthew 21, verse 9, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem and the crowds of Jews seem ecstatic that Jesus is coming. They lay down palm branches in front of him and shout in his honor, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you were to dissect this word Hosanna in the Greek, you would find that it simply means an expression and cry of adoration or praise. But when you dissect Hosanna in the Hebrew, as they most certainly would have been speaking, you find it has a slight change. Yashna is the word used. And it is a cry for salvation, deliverance, and rescue. You see, the Jews were waiting for the Christ to come and deliver them from their oppression from the Romans. These Jews thought Jesus was coming to give them what they wanted and to take back control from the Romans. But it's very likely that some of the Jews who were shouting Hosanna when they thought they would get what they wanted were the same ones shouting crucify him when it was apparent they weren't going to get their way. They didn't understand that Jesus wasn't coming to give them what they wanted, rather what they needed. I believe that is why so many people refuse the true gospel message today, because it isn't a gospel they can control, rather one which seeks to control them. This is also why many churches today have stopped proclaiming a gospel of complete surrender and submission, as it doesn't produce the numbers like a gospel message predicated on humanism. Herein lies the problem. We have altered the message in order to gain control ourselves. Do you see the subtlety? Just a slight twist in perspective and pride has a place to grow. As a result, many today think church exists for them and is even about them. Worship is now geared towards suiting the preferences of the people rather than a holy God. Some churches are even being trained to ask unbelievers what they would want in a church. How have we strayed so far? This humanistic gospel is rooted in the fact that many have been fed a deceptive message based primarily on maintaining control and selfishness, as subtle as it might be. People turn to God now, no longer because He is worthy, beautiful, and deserving of utter allegiance, but because they want to get something from Him. Pride shows its ugly face when we think that God and His church should revolve around us, fit in with our schedules and our agendas. So it was with the Jews who cried out, Hosanna. When many in the church today appear to be getting what they want, they sing praises. But when suddenly things aren't about them, and they are faced with needing to count the cost, make sacrifices, and carry a cross for his beloved, they begin to shout curses. I see it in churches all the time. A pastor rebukes sin, 
speaks a firm message, changes worship, calls out traditionalism, begins to enforce biblical expectations for producing godliness, or just simply put, tries to exercise his authority among the sheep and the avalanche of curses begin to flow. Why? Because the reins of life are being threatened and pride holds strong to the soil of control. As soon as a person feels as though they aren't in the driver's seat and aren't getting what they want, the curses begin pouring out like a mountain river after a storm. This is what happens when pride infiltrates and thus becomes the greatest deterrent to living out God's pattern for his church. Now, while exposing the deception and lure of pride was a vital concept to address, I want to stay with the theme of this chapter by examining the pattern given us by Christ, loving the household of faith. I would like to point out that observing and living out this pattern is God's way of marking us with his signet, and that is no small thing. It is his prescribed way under Christ to identify us as his people, his church, his beloved. Jesus himself says at the end of John 13, John 13, 34 through 35, emphasis mine. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is not a commission for us as Christians to simply love those in the world, though we are called to do so, even our enemies. This is a command for us to love the brethren, As Jesus was only talking to the 11 disciples in this moment, Judas had already left. The ones who had followed him from the beginning and had remained with him through everything, Jesus was essentially telling them, how you love each other will identify you as belonging to me. This action and expression of loving the brethren will mark us as his followers. It is our spiritual circumcision, the marking that identifies and distinguishes those who belong to God's heavenly Jerusalem in Christ. That is an amazing reality. Not only that, and that's a big thing to add, and not only to. He commands them to love one another as he has loved them. You might be thinking, that's impossible. How can we love as Jesus loved us? I mean, this is Jesus. How can we do anything as he did? Should I remind you who it is that lives inside of you? Let me give you an analogy to hopefully expound upon this often missed reality in Jesus' command to love as he loved us. My oldest son is currently 11 years old. What if I were to command him to go chop down a 200-year-old oak tree at my parents' house using only his hands? What if he were to go attempt it? How do you think he would feel, not only while trying to accomplish the task, but also on his return to me when he wasn't able to complete the impossible command? I'd imagine he would feel overwhelmed, ashamed, disappointed, frustrated, or defeated, among other emotions. He would have have a hard time trying to go out again for fear of experiencing those same feelings. For I commanded him to do something that I did not first correctly equip him to achieve. This is how many Christians feel about this command from Jesus. They hear his command, but they don't realize they have already been equipped to achieve it. So instead, they begin coming up with doctrines that justify why we in the church don't need to attempt to live out this command. Even if they do go out and try, they don't believe they are actually able to, and thus they return feeling frustrated, ashamed, disappointed, and defeated. That's how we get teachings of defeat rather than experiences of victory in the church today. But God loves us too much to command us to do something in Christ that he will not also enable us through Christ to accomplish by his spirit, the helper. The same spirit who empowered Jesus has now been given to you to empower you to live as he lived and love as he loved. 
Brethren, Jesus will not give his children a command in which we are incapable of following in him. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through his spirit. 2 Peter 1.3 And has stored up in heaven immeasurable riches for those who believe. Ephesians 1.15-23 Therefore we are fully equipped to love each other as he loved us. To say otherwise is to call God a liar. And sadly I've known several over the years who have done so by declaring this command to be impossible for Christians. Even Paul says we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Philippians 4.13 Have you ever paused to think about the application of this verse? It goes far beyond a simple verse you memorize for your Sunday school class at the age of nine. In fact, it has nothing to do with scoring touchdowns or acing a test as it is com- commonly applied today. All in this passage is referencing all things which Christ commands of us as his children. Ponder that for just a moment. We can achieve all things God commands of us through Christ who strengthens us to accomplish them in full, not in part. Brothers and sisters, God has given us all we need to live out this command, this pattern unto the world. We are not children of defeat, but children who are able to walk in victory. For Jesus was and is and always will be victorious. And we who are in him can share in that victory on a daily basis. Romans eight thirty seven. We must simply believe. So to recap, God instituted a pattern through his son. A pattern that must not be altered, diminished, or changed. His pattern is not to be theorized, intellectualized, or culturalized. God is clear. We are to build according to the blueprint he supplied in Christ. It is a pattern that produces hope, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit as we seek to live out indeed what Jesus exampled and commanded. We are to love one another as he loved us, so that all people will see his expressed image in and through his followers. It is a heavy task, but as believers, it is one we are fully equipped to accomplish. The Holy Spirit within us, our helper, is willing to build it accordingly if we will only submit to his leading and let go of control. For if the bad soil is removed and replaced with good soil, pride cannot grow. John echoes Jesus' teaching from John thirteen fifteen through 17 when he says in 1 John three eighteen, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We must not alter God's blueprint for his church by lowering the standards and expectations in order to placate to popular demand or to our own feelings and complacency. We must not seek to change the pattern to make it more convenient and comfortable so that we can have churches that are a mile wide but only an inch deep. Changing God's pattern for building his church is as dangerous as altering the blueprint of a space shuttle. There is too much at stake to think we know better than God, who is the master architect. We must trust that God knows best, both for us and his kingdom, and then align ourselves with him in obedience. God has chosen to mark his children according to how we love one another as his followers. Therefore, When we refuse to engage in obedience, we refuse to accept the marking of God.